0: Welcome to the AWP Podcast Series. This event was recorded at the 2015 AWP Conference in Minneapolis. The recording features C. M. Burroughs, Rita Dove, Richard Blanco, and Liz all. You will now hear Anne Hudson provide introductions. Thank you all for coming to four weddings and an inauguration, a panel on occasional poetry. My name is Ann Hudson. Last year, I was asked by a friend to write a poem she could deliver to her husband on his birthday. Equally pleased, horrified, and stumped by the request, I did what I always do in these cases. I phoned a friend. So, Liz, I said, what do you do when someone asks you to write a poem? for a birthday. This panel is her response. Many of you have been asked before to write poems for weddings. It's a beautiful time to be called forward to deliver a poem. It's a time for a poet to bring words to mark the occasion on behalf of all those gathered. It's a moment of public shared voice, a moment when a poet can offer something to the community in real time Think of Frederick in Leo Leone's classic children's book, the mouse who sat and watched as the seasons changed and his family stored food for the winter, and when the supplies had all run out, he stepped forward and shared the poem he'd been writing all that time, and it nourished them. It feels like a rare and important time for a poet to operate in a public sphere. Poets are asked to give voice in public moments of celebrating, of honoring... Of grieving because we want to give language to these shared experiences to speak aloud the words that will mark this occasion we put words to the ritual we invoke the incantation we put our voices towards shaping the terrifying shapelessness of feeling even good feeling we can focus that joy so we can bring our collective attention to the wedding couple We can pierce that grief and share memories of the dead. We can invoke hope and spirit in the gauzy political parade of an inauguration. The whens and whys of occasional poetry seem easier to parse than what occasional poetry actually is. We know there is an immediacy to a poem written for a particular occasion. It has something inherently time-stamped about it as it addresses a gathered audience and grapples with a singular moment in time. What's more, the occasional poem has something of the theatrical about it. In the words of Charlotte E.B. White Spider, after all, what's a life anyway? We're born, we live a little while, we die. And the same might be said of the occasional poem. It comes, it lives a little, it remarks or reflects on that moment, and then it dies. Yes, there are transcripts. We can reread the poem delivered for the inauguration and it still has life on the page. But the poem as it was created for the moment in which it was delivered and upon which it reflects is never exactly the same once the moment has slipped past. According to the Princeton Encyclopedia of Poetry and Poetics, and I quote, all literary works are occasioned in some sense. Occasional verse differs in having not a private but a public or social occasion. From Pindar's Odes to Whitman's When Lilacs Last in the Dooryard Bloomed, poets have found public occasions for writing. For example, the memorial pieces in honor of Edward King, the Odes expected of a poet laureate, tributes to a poem placed at the beginning of his volume, epithalamia, funeral elegies, or sonnets or odes memorializing some state occasion or historic event, end quote perhaps we do well to parse the differences between occasional poems that arise organically from the poet, such as pieces written in response to 9-11. We might call these the offered occasional poem. And occasional poems written on commission, which may or may not have a whiff of patronage about them, the solicited occasional poem. We might also consider the curated occasional poem, that is, a poem selected for an occasion which wasn't written specifically for it. How, then, might we think about The Gift Outright, Robert Frost's inaugural poem for John F. Kennedy, which he was asked to and intended to read for the occasion. The night before the inauguration, Frost, in a burst of inspiration, wrote a new poem, Dedication. But when he stood at the podium to read it, he had difficulty reading the copy he'd typed out on the hotel typewriter and reverted to The Gift Outright after all, having memorized it. And how might we consider elegies versus eulogies? Even the Princeton Encyclopedia shrugs its shoulders at this point, stating rather exasperatedly that, quote, in short, although occasional verse is often taken to be ephemeral or trivial or public, it is difficult to devise theoretical terms to distinguish rigorously between Lycidas, Milton's poem in honor of his classmate who died in a shipwreck, Dickinson's imaginary occasions of her own death, Lowell's on the Union Dead, and various Asian examples. (laughs) On the other hand, to be dismissive is to violate the most serious conceptions of much of the world's lyric poetry. Even narrative and drama may arise from occasion. The encyclopedia, it turns out, is no help at all. Happily, we gathered this marvelous panel to answer these and other questions on occasional poetry. In the interest of allowing the most time for robust discussion, we are addressing the thorny problem of lengthy introductions by way of our handout. And speaking of handouts, I hope you all got a copy. We have on here some discussion prompts, and we hope that you will take a few minutes and turn to the stranger next to you, introduce yourself, become great AWP pals, and discuss any of these prompts which interest or intrigue you, uh, they are as follows. President-elect Clinton calls. She wants a poem for the inauguration. You have three weeks. What do you do? How do you do it? Your daughter's seventh-grade English teacher asks you to write a poem for the middle school graduation. It will be printed in the poem and must be approved by the principal before it can be used. What if the principal has a reservation about it? Aunt Matilda is getting married, fourth time's a charm. She'd love you to compose a poem for the ceremony. Your local library is having a ribbon-cutting ceremony to commemorate its new space. What will you read for the occasion? A terrible storm tears through your town. Uh, We wrote this before the tornadoes in Illinois yesterday. Many homes and buildings are destroyed, and several people lose their lives. At the one-year anniversary of the storm, there is a dedication ceremony of a memorial downtown, and you are asked to write a poem for the occasion. What do you think of and why? You've been asked to participate in a 9-11 memorial and to select a poem or curate a group of poems, not one you've written. What do you select and why? Does it matter that these weren't written for the occasion? You ask your dear friend, who is a skilled poet, to write a poem for your wedding. It is presented to you in advance, and you are disappointed. What do you do? Your dean chair boss is retiring after 100 years on the job. You are asked to write a poem for the retirement dinner. I will give you a few minutes to talk to the person next to you and discuss what you would do if you were put on the spot thusly. Thank you all so much for participating. It was going to be a long, awkward silence if you didn't have someone to talk to, so thank you. Thank you so much for participating. Now that you've had a chance to consider some of the issues surrounding occasional poetry, we'd like to hear from our panelists. We'll begin with C.M. Burroughs, editor of Court Green, whose upcoming issue includes a section devoted to occasional poetry. We will continue with Rita Dove, former Poet Laureate of the United States, then Richard Blanco, who wrote and read One Today for President Obama's second inauguration ceremony, and conclude with Liz All, who in addition to being the friend I can ask about these things, has written numerous poems for birthdays and weddings, and who put this whole panel together. Thanks so much, Liz, for answering my question. Please help us welcome C.M. Burroughs.
1: Thank you. Good morning, everyone. So this is the latest issue of Court Green. It's in the 1200 block of our beautiful book fair, if you're interested after. So my usual reasons for standing in front of audiences like you is to read my poems. In fact, I and my colleague and co-editor of Court Green, Tony Tregilio, are both poets, which makes it particularly devilish that we made the dossier for this final issue of court green on the occasion of. I say devilish because none of us is naturally compelled to write the occasional poem. We drag toward it if we go at all. Just last week I was asked to write a poem on the occasion of my all women's alma mater Sweet Bar College that's closing down and amid all the uproar of one of the seven sisters closing I said no. Much for the same reason I believe you all would. The pressure one feels to capture the sentimentality and nostalgia of others is immeasurable. we just as soon not take on the task. But back to the devil. In the spring of 2014, Tony and I considered how to approach our next issue of Court Green. We wanted to construct a challenge to instigate curiosity. We wanted in this 12th issue and final year of Court Green for the journal to play against yet another edge. The form of the occasional poem may not strike you as particularly dangerous or provocative, but it is exactly that urge for such an effect and the difficulty of defining it, the danger that we sought. In the hundreds of submissions that came, submissions that came in over the next several weeks, we search for poems that give innovation to the form, that give what we don't imagine possible when we set out for an occasion or its poem. To offer you something of what I call an edge, here's a poem from our dossier, Jan Beatty's On the Occasion of Not Committing Suicide, which begins with an epigraph by Luis J. Rodriguez. We tried to enter death and emerge from it. We skin popped it in our forearms, a few cents worth, on the occasion of not committing suicide. Because there's a light coming, because you don't know about it, because fuck it, just wait. Because fuck it, just wait. Because I used to start each day with thoughts of how, because your heart exploding could open. Because I used to sleep with all my clothes and shoes on. Because I love your hands, your graceful fingers, and yes, you have a right. But the fire in you could talk and blow up the dead. And lover, we've never seen that yet. What you will bring. What a firestorm of heart. I'm waiting for it. What patchwork. Of lives This poem presents us with a speaker that, once away from her provocation, looks for reasons not to. What deviates from what you may think of as a conventional occasional poem is that this poem is written for the first-person pronouns, "I and "we." It gazes inward and toward the most intimate features of the "I and "other. How refreshing to, the simplicity of "Because fuck it, just wait." This poem and its tone rid sentimentality, do away with nostalgia. It exists, nearly all of it, in the present moment. By conventional, I mean to say that this particular poem is not what one has in mind when asking his or her friend, brother, daughter, or mother to write a poem for my wedding, birthday, quinceanera, inauguration, coming out party, but how refreshing that we can nod to the vast tonal occupations of the occasional poem in editing this issue, I understand what writers attempt to veer from and what editors fear is too much sugar or too many a tear. Kevin Gonzalez's On Marriage is another surprising poem of the dossier. On Marriage. We have a son. Late night as I drive to the casino, this is what I think. We have a son. I am disastrously alive inside this song, and every drink I drink, I drink to be more disastrously alive, to be at home with you instead of crossing this dark, to kiss goodnight, this sun we have, rather than shove this pedal through the sternum of the night, would be to break even, my love, the best light of your searchlight is wasted on the dark, the white lines on the road, Whip me on the heart, so we have this son, we have this son, we have this son we have. What I want to kill tonight is the part of me who doesn't think of that. On marriage attracts because its occasion vacillates. It shifts between the speaker as grateful parent and partner, which is a role held shuddering in his periphery, and the more immediate occasion, that of the speaker driving toward his vice, his deviance, and the latter prevails, the tension reverbs, and its jerking structure racks my body as reader in the space between. I've chosen poems to read wherein the speakers delve into the most fraught parts of themselves, but what I want you to keep in mind is that Tony and I curated this issue in order to create a conversation between poems, between the lyric and narrative poem between the expected and unexpected address of occasions. I'm going to offer two more poems from Court Green's dossier. Patrick Kindig's, On the Occasion of Watching Geography Club, it's a 2013 film. I cried like a baby, even though I wasn't gay until college, and the movie was stuffed with Disney actors and men too pretty for me to date, now or then. I'm not proud that every film about coming out breaks me down like a cardboard box, even the bad ones. I'm not proud of that the darkest part of me wanted the obvious hero to get with the douchebag, the traitorous boy who left him for his football buddies, a move I'm still too often guilty of making, pretending my boyfriend is my designated driver when we get McDonald's at 1 a.m., playing up my athlete swagger at parties. And though I have also biked like the hero before, in spring and newly not giving a fuck, who knows that I spent the night in another man's bed when the douchebag said, I just want to be normal, Russell, but also I really like you. I pressed pause after that, wishing, like him, that I could have avoided the second clause. This, of course, was an impossibility, the point of the film And I had to watch to the end where I cried, not because it was a beautiful ending or the story was especially poignant, but because the world that birthed this movie was 10 years away when I was in middle school, beginning to learn I was somehow different, unlike my friends, ravenous for short skirts and tank tops, a boy who prayed in secret for stiff sheets after each accidental dream of breasts who penciled pictures of naked men on rice paper and took them into the shower to watch them dissolve. And Michael Broders delivering the news. I had to slow down to check the numbers, but I didn't need to go that slow. When I found it, clapboard, shutters, split rail fence, I sat in the car until the song ended. Then I walked up and tapped, light as I could. She saw me in my dress greens and she knew like always I knew from her eyes the way she held her breath and I kept saying ma'am I need to come in and she kept saying I'm sorry but I can't let you and a breeze kicked up the leaves in the driveway a cloud passed in front of the sun and I smelled coffee brewing in the house that was it me standing there in my dress screens she knew these poems, intimately toned as they are, address common experiences of regret, the attempt to fulfill what one must, the first anchoring in sexuality and the second in the casualties, Oh, so how they ripple of war. We have given the dossier its unique section, but it exists most loudly flanked by new poetry by the past and present editors poetry that exists outside of the theme, and a selection of poems by Nathan Brettling, and in memory of him, a poet and graduate of Columbia College's MFA program, who passed on too soon. Publishing this final issue is its own occasion, and I'm glad to have been able to honor what this court green holds and what its binding has held these past years with you. Thank you.
2: Good morning. This is not my time of day, I warn you right now. (laughs) And so, Anne is correct when she says that every poem is in some way occasioned. It exists in its bubble of time and the pressure that's around it. The poem is written fully, I think, cognizant of the moment, a moment which can be as intimate as a glance or a gasp or a sigh or something more large, something larger and more public. And, and when I was first asked if I would participate in this panel, I thought, well, I don't write occasional poems. And then I thought about it and I realized mm-hmm. every poem I had ever written practically had been occasioned in some way. Starting with the very first one that I remember and that I was proud of, which was at age 10 and we were all asked to do something for Easter in uh, fourth grade and I wrote a poem about a rabbit with a droopy ear. Already an outsider at that time. But <laughs> it was it was a visceral response to this kind of Pat, pat Easter uh, sensations, And it's carried on since then. Um, I thought what I'd do today, because I was, I've done s- several poems which were kind of occasional in the sense that the occasion called me to it before someone else called me and said, would you do it for the occasion? And one of those, uh, for instance, when I was Poet Laureate, I went down to Washington, D.C., just to check out the poetry office and see what this office meant. No one seemed to know. (laughs) And I walked into the poetry office and looked across the street, and you look down on, on the U.S. Capitol, and at that time, this was 1993, At that time, the top of the capitol building, the statue up there, Lady Freedom, had been brought down for cleaning. And so she was sitting down there large and out of place and dirty and homeless. And just standing there realizing that I was now going to somehow assume a public face for something that I considered a very private experience. Made me. I, I looked and I thought, there's got to be a way to restore poetry to this public occasion. And it, it was really just the idea of becoming a poet laureate, whatever that was, that made me start to write a poem that called "Lady Freedom Among Us." Which then, about five months later, in October, I was asked if I would say a few words at the reinstallment of Lady Freeman on Freedom on top of the dome. And I could say, kind of say, oh sure, I'll be happy to <laughs> write a poem, which was already written. What I, what I mean by all of that is that I've found through the years the, the one thing that helps when you're asked to write an occasional poem and you do feel that you want to write that occasional poem is to really seriously think about the person who is in the audience out there and what you would, what that, that moment, that ephemeral moment that Anne talked about, would be like, how can you help create it? And that takes some of the pressure, I think, off of, uh, oh my gosh, I've got to write something that, that's going to be memorable. I think to remember that it is ephemeral is really helpful. Because in a sense, the soul rises to the occasion, you know, by stepping out of itself in order to communicate with an exterior presence it's like Emily Dickinson said you know this is my letter to the world that never wrote to me and to remember that at times has been really helpful for me I wanted to talk also however about another kind of occasional poem and that is the occasion where one is asked to collaborate with someone else and I highly recommend this for anyone. Just, I, mean, I do think the cross-genre experience is really important because it stretches you and makes you realize the, the capabilities of the word, how far it can be stretched to reach into other disciplines. And I'd like to talk about, out of personal experience, a, a few of these collaborations. I have been a musician pretty much all my life. I played the cello and the da gamba and then I started taking voice lessons when I couldn't carry my cello around because I needed music with me but uh, what that has he- helped me do on occasion is to write poems with musicians and I'm not talking about handing a poem to someone and saying, you know, here, you know make this and they set it to music, though I've had the pleasure of had that, having that done as well, but actually sitting down with a musician or with a composer and doing it together out of scratch. And the wonderful thing about that is that you learn certain things about how the human voice carries in a room. To remember that when someone is listening to you and they don't have the text before you, certain words are going to get lost. Certain vowels will not carry. S's will just hiss all over the place. You know, these kind of things which in a certain way are like writing prompts. They're like little things that hem you in. It's like telling you to do a haiku, right? So to sit down with a composer is really a, a great experience in, in, in that regard. Uh, when I was asked in 1999, of course it was a millennium and we all thought we were going to die. And so let's go out with a bang. And, and one of the things that President Clinton had commissioned was the idea of doing a millennium firework display in front of the Lincoln Memorial right at midnight. And to do this, they had gathered together a a kind of team of all sorts of people. Steven Spielberg did a movie, a kind of slideshow behind us and a movie as well called The Unfinished Journey, America The Unfinished Journey. John Williams composed the music. Ken Burns was sitting in this room with us and Doris Kearns Goodwin and I was the poet and I'm like, holy, holy. And they had this kind of jam we were supposed to have a think tank session. We're going to throw things out and I'm like, I don't work this way. I really don't work this way. But what I did was I, I took notes and I was very quiet and I listened to them throw out images and ideas and so that I could get a sense of what they were going to do because I thought, okay, music carries. There's no problem with that. Visuals are they know how to address a huge audience. How do you make the big moment intimate? And it was, and I, and I had one section of this, and there were other poets involved as well, and I, but I had one section of this to do, and I thought, okay, you're going to stand up there, and everyone's going to be cold as heck, because it's, you know, December, so it must be short, and it has to carry. It has to be simple, but it has to also be crisp. And that took some of the pressure off the, the notion that I had to get up there and do this thing as well. And to realize that it would disappear. I think to have that, well we all hope that we have this lack of ego, I think when we approach the page. If we don't do that, uh, we don't have that lack of ego, the poem is pompous and it's, it's overheard, it, it, it's not really anything that opens us into ourselves. And I think that an occasional poem, if it really is successful, if it really works, it occasions in each of the audience, of the one's standing out there, you know, just a sense of intimacy in the middle of the open space and a, a, a feeling of being part of the tribe, but also an individual who is buoyed by the, by, the, by the tribe. So that was one of the things that I think helped me in that regard. I think I'm a sucker for punishment because I do tend to agree to collaborations that are really, really ridiculous for poets (laughs) to try to do. But it's an idea of like, let's see what happens. Another occasion was in 1989, I believe, 1989. I had been in residence at the National Humanities Center in uh, North Carolina and there was a tradition that every class, and most of the people in there are humanities scholars, and they let a poet in occasionally, or an artist, and every class gave a class gift at the end. Well, our class decided that they wanted a collaboration between the poet and the artist. The artist was Ava Kurlik, a wonderful installation, kind of three-dimensional artist, and we thought about it, and then we agreed, and then what happened was this. We walked around the Humanities Center, which is a kind of a glass-enclosed building, which was beautiful to be in because of all the light, but was extremely dangerous for birds because they would crash into it. So they had all the shadow bird you know, decals on the windows that the architect had wanted to be clear, but that's not going to work in a practical world. And we walked and we said, we have to do something with this kind of disjunction. And in the end, what happened was that, I won't go into the whole description of it because it's very difficult to talk about the visual, but Ava had a scroll of muslin, like, like an old ancient scroll with lots of images on it. And then she had another plexiglass case, a horizontal case, which had a, a literal scroll that the poem was going to be in. This meant that only about twenty four inches of the poem could be seen at any time. It was two pages worth. There was more, but it was hidden. You could scroll it out if you wanted to, but it, and the whole idea of breaking up the narrative that way that I had no i could not predict who was going to read what you know was extremely interesting to me and so I learned a lot about narrative. I learned a lot about this is a public space, this is an occasioned poem, but it's an extremely intimate occasioned poem because only one person at a time uh, could stand before it and do it. And what happened was that I also was given a huge, I think it's like 25 feet of muslin. And she said, and some absolutely non erasable <laughs> pens. <laughs> she said, and now you put your poem on it and so of course I had lots of drafts before that but that meant I had to be if I had a blot I had to incorporate the blot into the story so, so beads and beads of, of red and all this stuff uh, got into the, into the whole mix so that was another kind of collaboration but it, it did also say to me okay if someone walks into a room while you are giving your poem can it stand up to that moment? can it can they still get into it in an occasional poem? These kind of things I think can can it, if, if you think of it more as a writing prompt and not as an, an absolute you know, life and death experience they can really they can really help occasion the poem and um, finally, I think i 'll talk about another one which I, I have some handouts which you can pick up at the end just if you want to see an image of something. I was trying to find an image of some of these works, but one of my most, uh, I think, really one of my favorite uh, collaborations happened uh, with an interior architect, interior design architect, who had been commissioned to design the lobby of the courthouse, in, a federal courthouse in Sacramento. And he contacted me. He said, "I have an idea, but I don't know how to put it in. I, said, I want to have twelve marble chairs representing the jurors in the court room in a." in a lobby, in a circle. And he said, people can sit on them and all of that. But he said, I thought that maybe we could put some words on these chairs. And thought of that, I thought, well, there, there they are in a circle. No beginning, no end. No one, and the, the, the spectator is ambushed. This is an occasion you stumble into. What I thought was, uh, why not have some interrupted thoughts of the jurors on the backs of those chairs? Things that don't make kind of a real narrative sense, but it's what they're thinking at the moment. And the challenge of it was, and the delight of it was actually, the fact that I never knew when the spectator would notice that there was poetry on the back of the chairs and would start to read. So it had to read in a circle. There was no beginning and there was no end. What happens there is that the, the words reverberate in that silence of, of the, the spectator noticing it in the middle of the lobby so those are also uh, you know occasional moments I would go on, we could talk on and on but I I mean one of my favorite things and I'll end with this is a poem that I was asked to write for Big Bird you know, Sesame Street you can't say no to Sesame Street (laughs) and what happened was and I'm going to find it in a minute when I was Port Laureate, uh, Sesame Street contacted me and said you know would you Would you appear and talk about poetry to kids? and I said, "Sure, uh, that sounds like my, my daughter loved it. I, I would get kudos with my daughter and uh, at that time and this is it, it was really wonderful to be able to think of what a a child would like to hear, and also the fact that there was a huge yellow bird <laughs> sitting next to you, and so That was really a kind of wonderful moment. Now, of course I can't find the poem because I don't do this, but I'll find it and I'll read it to you later, okay? I I don't want to take up any more time from anyone else here. We have all sorts of things to do. But uh, that's my take on the occasional poem. Don't let it get you down. (laughs) (laughs) Okay,
3: thank you. Is it morning, still? I sure. With three to the same thing, I'm only on four espressos, so I need about eight more. <laughs> anyway, it's a pleasure to be here. Obviously, this is a subject matter, a discussion that's very fresh in my mind and in my heart and something that I'm sort of still processing and dealing with. I'd like to start with sort of kind of an interesting irony that I found was my very first poetry assignment in graduate school by Campbell McGrath is we read some Ginsberg, some Frost. was that other guy? Whitman. And he, our take-home assignment is, write a poem about America. And I went home and scratched my head. I was like, this is, what America is this? That I was, so, Ginsburg? This is not my America. <laughs> a little Cuban kid from me. But anyway, I find it interesting because I was exactly the same assignment I got 20 years later when Obama called and said, <laughs> write a poem about America. <laughs> and of course, I thought, I got it. This is just between us. But for about five seconds I was a little cocky uh, because I thought I've done that poem you know I've I've been writing about America you know really throughout my whole body of work is questioning my cultural identity and place in America so I I thought don't worry Obama Uh, you got it you've reached the right number so that lasted five seconds of course till you face the daunting task of realizing it is like a, it is like that poem, but then it isn't, and investigating what that journey would look like, and just jumping into it. I had to write, I don't know if it's common knowledge, but I had to write three poems in three weeks. Not just one, but three. So, so enter, you know, just entering the mystery with that. So I wanted to share some of what that process went through. And I actually detailed a lot of this only because I felt for the, the poor next inaugural poet as maybe a little handbook of what would happen. It's a, a book called uh, For All of Us One Today, An Inaugural Poet's Journey. I almost had to write it because I, just, I, I knew this experience was, just had to be sort of exercised out of me. But the creative journey, the, the spiritual journey, the, the emotional journey, and all the rest, and a lot of sort of fun anecdotes too. Anyway, so a few things I learned was or relearned or really things that are already in regular poems that really are heightened in the occasional poem for me was this idea when, it, when I came to think of it that that occasional poem in that particular instance was my first spoken word poem. It was the first poem that it would ever be heard before it would ever be read in my life. Mm-hmm. And you really had to think about that. You had seven minutes to capture the imagination of 40 million people <laughs> through the ear. And if you didn't do it through the ear, if you didn't do it through its performance, the poem was going to go nowhere and literally sort of really do, do, really die right there in the moment. So I really started rehearsing the poem, really started thinking about the poem in the sense of this triangulation, that, that there was another thing going on. There was the poet. There was the audience right in front of me. There was the audience that wasn't right in front of me that would read this poem and the audience of my peers this sort of triangulation of how, how do you solve those three things and how can you satisfy those three things. I rehearsed the poem like I've never rehearsed a poem in my life, you can imagine. I rehearsed outside, uh, I built a, a makeshift podium in my, in my deck in, in my house in Maine with a photo of Obama. Um, <laughs> and it, This is Maine in January and overlooking a bluff and a snowman that my nephews had built that was falling apart already and I read to the snowman. I needed to get the sense that this poem wasn't just something. It was something that was embodied. It was something that, and getting back to that idea of where poetry comes from, right? This, not, we, we, you know, we, we say oral tradition a lot, and we kind of like love that. It's a buzzword, but this was oral tradition right in front of your eyes. This was something about creating a virtual campfire, something that was going to be a story shared, and that, and that, since then it's taught me to sort of approach every single poem in that way and that every single poem has to sort of in some way pay attention to that oral tradition because at the end of the day you're gonna get up someplace at some moment and read the poem And you have to create that space. So in some way, editing for sound, editing for almost like a musician, like almost going through it like like you're writing notes. How do I inflect this, you know, bolding lines that I wanted to really emphasize. Letting it, it's just like music, right? It starts becoming part of your physiology. Your body starts remembering how to read the poem. And it starts informing you how to revise the poem. And we, you know, again, we say that all the time and we say that to students, oh, read the poem aloud. It's not read it aloud once, it's read it aloud 20 times, 20 times, so that thing becomes part of your body. The other piece was, which I think is the most important thing for me and I think something that sort of touches on what everybody is saying here on the panel, that in some ways it's very different than a regular poem, in another way it's very much the same. There are processes that are the same. and one when I search to write, a, when I'm in, in a regular poem, it's this idea of the emotional center, of the poem's reason for being. With the occasional poem, I think you still have to search that. You have to search, what about that occasion can I really, really emotionally bond to? At the end of the day, it's this irony, of course, as all artists, that it's about the subject matter, but it's also about transcending the subject matter at the same time. And with inaugural poem in particular, I had to go through sort of a lot of that emotional searching. Well, what is this? You know, I mean, at some point it was, I started the poem with the Pilgrim's Landing, and like, you know, by page 12, we were still like at the Civil War, and I was like, what's going on here? And I was like, okay, Richard, who cares about all this crap? Seriously, if I don't care about it, why? And I think that's important to realize. You have to care about something in in that assignment. And you have to search deeply, emotionally, just like anything else, just like an assignment in a a workshop. Write a poem about America. Write a poem about an object. You have to find some kind of passion, something that you can connect, and there's an interesting triangulation there. In an occasional poem, audience is alive like nothing else. So you have to realize, what is it that your audience cares about that I can care about too? In the inaugural poem, to follow that same example, I had to ask some heart-wrenching questions. And one was, Richard? Are you American? Because to some point I still felt, you know, well, I'm not quite Peter Brady or Marsha Brady. And so there was that sense that I didn't have the emotional authority to write that poem. The other one is, do I love America? Can I be honest enough in a poem to say I can write a poem? That can, can I connect with America in that way? Questions I had never really been forced to ask. I had explored in my writing. But this was, you know, if I couldn't, if I couldn't answer yes to those questions... I might as well call the White House and say, you know what, you need to find somebody else for that, this poem. And, of course, I wasn't going to do that, but, uh, but it really felt that strongly. And for me, luckily, and as the mysteries of creativity happen when you're, you're putting yourself out there, for me, it was actually Sandy Hook when that, that tra- the tragedy of Sandy Hook happened right, right as I got the assignment. And suddenly, I felt this emotional door open, this connection, feeling that, yes, this is my family. This is my nation-village. And like every great dysfunctional family, I don't love everything about America, but in some ways, you know, like those families, we come together in moments of great tragedy and great triumph. And, and I felt suddenly I could write. I gave myself that emotional permission, that authority that I could pull this off because I cared, because I honestly found something to care about. And more than that, I, as, in searching for that, at first when I wrote the inaugural poem, I thought, I was, you know, I thought it was sort of a distant poem you know, that had nothing to do with me in some ways But as I looked back through the poem and I've been living with it for over two years now, it's one of the most deeply personal poems that I have ever written in the sense that it circles around the same obsession that all my other poems circle around. What is home? How do we know what that feels like? Everything that that big word calls into place, including culture identity, national loyalties. How do we we know home? How do we find home? And the inaugural poem, in some ways, is just that. It's a contemplation of... How do we all sit around that table and say we're family and we're home? So in some ways I realized that, yeah, it comes from, the same, from, the same sort of, from that same sort of emotional center. And you've got you to look for that with the occasional poem in that way. It has to do, connect beyond the subject matter while still honoring the subject matter and the audience. Where is that common denominator? The other thing that was interesting in writing occasional poems... And and I'll share some that I've, that I've written since then and been asked to some weird ones as well, <laughs> so, that I love. <laughs> but um, one of the things was this idea of tension in a poem. When we come to an occasional poem, I think we automatically, and they're usually poems of celebration and joy and, you know, wedding. And, and so how do you avoid an occasional poem that becomes a Hallmark poem? That's a very big challenge. More so than in when you're writing sort of your regular poems where you already have built-in conflict with a loved one, your mother-in-law, etc., you already got tension in there built in, right? You come to the page already with that tension. With an occasional poem, you almost have to find that tension. And it can be very subtle, but it sort of has to be there. And again, referring to the inaugural poem, on the one hand, it can appear to be very Pollyanna, this idea one today, we're all one today, but if you really read the poem, it's really saying, well, we're not really yet there. You know, It ends on this idea waiting for us to name that hope, waiting for us to map that hope. So it's this sort of very subtle tension that I knew I had to work in there. But it's also, I think, again, all these lessons sort of overlap into when we write our regular poems, and I think what's great about the exercise of the inaugural poem in some ways is that it makes us re-examine our Personal poems and relearn these elements of craft, or add dimension to them in ways that maybe we were never forced to think about them. So I think you know I think all those things were you know really things I'm still loving and enjoying those discoveries and, and keeping and and have have taken them forward in writing my own personal poems. Always this sense that every poem in some ways again an occasional poem, but, in the, but also in the sense that it, it should be larger than yourself. And at the same time, again, this great irony of art, the, the universal—is in the particular sort of applies in the same way with an occasional poem. In some ways, everything we write is to sit around that campfire and share it and have an occasion for it. The other thing was that taught me was a sense of boundary, boundary and scale and these kinds of things. I think you mentioned about how can something be intimate and yet you know this brand stroke and you do need that grand stroke every once in a while and for that I did actually you know turn in a sense to nature in the poem and to Whitman and to the very few in our Norton anthology of modern poetry that do have that oracular voice that reach for a little bit something beyond but that idea of how the poem started how I solved it was the poem starting had these grand Whitman strokes of one sun rose on us, you know nature, the transcendent power of nature, something that everybody can connect to and can 't deny moon, sun, earth, wind, you know those those primordial pieces experiences of nature that we have, and then worth drawing back into the very finite details to give a clear, crisp picture of things, but also even in choosing those details in a regular poem, I might have been detailing them much more specifically and personally to my own sort of realm of experience. In the inaugural poem what you had to do is sort of select images that were once at once specific and at once open enough to sort of let other people see themselves in the mirror of the poem, but yet intimately. So when the poem says "on our way to clean tables, read ledgers, or save lives," they're very specific choices. I didn't say "on our way to wait tables or clean tables at the diner on 51st Street." Or so it's—it's it's about echoing an image that's specific enough but lets it be grand as well. But breathing between these two spaces, and then infusing my own personal moments in there, I think to me was the hardest and most ground uh, sort of. Aha moment, those little references when I refer to or to ring up groceries as my mother did for 20 years so I could write this poem today. Suddenly, it's not an occasion poem. It's not like I'm writing a poem for you. No, I am part of this poem. I am a person in this poem. I have as much at stake emotionally as you who are listening to me and what this moment's all about. So, those are really important things that I think you take with you, and I encourage you those assignments. Do them. (laughs) Do every single one of them. Nothing but write, and I think you'll all agree, writing an occasional poem will turn everything that you think about poetry on its head, reconfirm it and add to it in ways that I think no other assignment can It should be a required assignment at every MFA program. Seriously, it, it it just makes you look at poetry in a whole other different way and yet arrive at some very common ground conclusions. Beyond my discoveries in the writing process, and the emotional process. There were other things that happened as a result of the occasional poem that were important, and one was I had subscribed to the idea nobody reads poetry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, granted, the inauguration does this at a scale like nothing else in America, (laughs) but I realized that writing an occasional poem is in some ways a great service that you're doing for poetry. And not just occasional poems, you're saying collaborations. Anything that puts poetry in the public space, in the public realm, because, the, you know, f- we crashed three Gmail accounts from people writing from all over the world, people hugging you in the street and crying, little kids drawing pictures of the inaugural poem, writing their own inaugural poems, all sorts of wonderful things that you realized when you throw that poem out there. You're doing something, but if you're saying about the egos, forget the ego also. You're also doing something that's of great service for the art of poetry by just having people connect with that poem. In many cases, it's the first time in their lives that they have ever connected with a contemporary voice. And the results are amazing. And that's what keeps me thrilled about doing occasional poems. And I'll just share a couple of anecdotes of some that have come up. About time, right? I don't know why Cubans talk so much. But uh, <laughs> some of the, the things that have, that have happened, a couple one is the Boston Strong poem, which is a, a poem that was commissioned to read after the marathon bombings. And again, what was the, my emotional relationship? I'm not a Bostonian, I wasn't there. And so that was a very particular, I had to find something I cared about and it was little Martin, little boy. And I tried to focus my emotion around that boy that, that, that was a victim of the, of the, of the, of the uh, bombings. I got to read that poem at the opening of the uh, benefit concert and you could hear a pin drop. Not because it's my poem, but it was everyone knew and expected and wanted a poem they knew somehow that that was the right thing it was almost like a prayer to open the entire concert i mean and i was petrified here was aerosmith james taylor you know i I was opening for them so (laughs) that was that was more terrifying than the inauguration Uh, to be honest with you one of the most weird uh, weird ones was the fragrance foundation called me up to write a poem Uh, and it's this big fancy it's been around since 1946 but it was a poem about fragrance or about, or about scent. I was like, what the hell do I do with this? The, the <laughs> organizer took me out to lunch, was crying, she was like, I want you to write this poem. And I just was, what? okay, sure. The Catholic, it was like set in. But the beautiful thing about this poem, again, it, it, I took it also in motion to but creative challenge. As we all know, what is the hardest thing to write about? Scent, right? and it became a completely autobiographical poem in the sense of, I'm not gonna attempt to think about what other people's sense are so particular to their lives, but just evoking that space and reading this poem at Lincoln Center with Taylor Swift and, it Justin or Jason Bieber, I forget. <laughs> but again, nobody was clawing for the door. They were, awesome. they enjoyed it. It was the first time probably that many people had had that moment. There's another poem for the Tech Awards in Silicon Valley that was very similar. And as far as collaborations, we made me think about that and how that also puts things out in the public mm-hmm. space. A couple of composers and things that will expand the, the the territory of poetry, as you say. These collaborations can do great things in add dimension. And there is, oh, one neat project is a constellation project. And what they're doing is somewhere up in the, in the Hudson River Valley. They're creating from this historic building, they're projecting a constellation, like an artificial constellation in, in the middle of the valley, and writing a poem for that. So all those great things I just wanted to share with you, to not run away from them, but to actually invite occasional poems, actually create them, like some of the assignments. Literally, it's, it's a great learning for yourself, you're doing great service for poetry, and I think we need that. I think it helps reclaim the public space that poetry has always had historically in our lives, and I think we need that, in some ways, more than ever.
4: At my midsize state university in northern New England, our student union building, the hub, is built around a large open lobby space with a big fireplace and a hearth. Through the long winter, there's always a fire burning, lots of big chairs nearby where you can sit and warm up and read and talk with friends. A few years ago, the Hub started holding a ceremony called First Fire, which marks each season's first lighting of the fireplace. The event consists of brief remarks, the lighting of the fire, and a speedy dishing out of donuts and muffins and coffee and hot cider in that year's souvenir First Fire mug. The whole thing happens mid-morning in a 15-minute window between classes. There are times when my colleagues at school or in the small town surrounding it get the sense that some occasion they're working on requires the recitation of a poem. I probably should not admit how much I love the sense that as my meteorologist colleague Lourdes is called on to help figure out whether the provost should call a snow day, or my historian colleague Becky is called to appear at the public library on public radio to discuss regional historical figures and matters, I too, though not as frequently, am called on. When the first fire tradition was begun, I got the call asking if I'd be willing to share a poem suited to the occasion. In truth, this was probably just a brief email. In memory, my secret phone, think wall-mounted bat phone behind break-in-case-of-emergency glass, rings for the first time in a long time. Is there a poet in the house? Yes, there is. That first year when the request came rather last minute, I read a poem by another writer. But starting the following year, I agreed to write one specially. I'm going to read it now, and I need your help. So it's going to sound really great if you help me out, and it's going to be really awkward for all of us if you don't. So when I point at you, we just say, first fire, all together. That's also the title of the poem. Here we go. First fire. Mid-October, late morning in the cavernous lobby where the hearth has slept through the summer months in clean, cool hibernation. Paper and wood await the awakening spark. First fire, a year ago, the first first fire, not long after Irene emptied herself into the Pemi, which emptied itself into the floodplain and beyond. The fire of a final drying out, a late start, a new tradition. First fire. Many years ago, someone struck and tossed the first match with a hiss and a flick of the wrist into this brick-and-mortar cavern. Once upon a time, this place was newly built, this chimney, ceremoniously or quietly, we don't know, lit for the first time. First fire, was it lightning strike? Did it inspire? What ancient ancestor, before words, before agriculture, figured out how to recombine the familiar elements oxygen fuel spark into civilizing flames? First fire, fossil remains from the longest ago show evidence of early, early burns. First fire, a change of life for the grunting cave dwellers. Now we can do things at night. Now we can barbecue, flambe, char. Now we can live in the cold places. Now we can keep the night creatures away. Now we can be night creatures. First fire, tectonic plates floating on oceans of magma. First fire, the mother volcano hurling ash and pumice into the sky. First fire, everything dense and hot, and then the big bang. First fire, Sistine Chapel ceiling fingertip spark. First fire, true love stoking the furnace of your guts. First fire, the right word in the right place at the right time. First fire, the dry wood, the dry paper catching like magic. First fire, the brilliant ideas, bright torch followed through darkness, first fire. Well done. (laughs) I would reward you with muffins and cider if I had them. Just a few thoughts. I've read and shared other occasional poems at my school over email and out loud. In my very small pond, way up in the sticks, I am the one full-time poet fish. I think I was invited to bring poetry to the First Fire event because I'm trusted to be able to write a poem and or qualified to pick an appropriate one and read it decently. Write one or choose one. Maybe it doesn't matter too much which. I may have committed out loud in front of everybody to writing and reciting a new First Fire poem every year until I die at my desk. This will be an interesting challenge though, I think. I knew it would feel a little awkward to read this poem to you, with you, although you did such a great job, given that you weren't a part of the occasion's audience, given that this is not that occasion. Is there a temporary space-time visa I might grant you to permit such travel? Is there any chance at longevity for my poem, or do certain of its details, a hurricane, a building, an us, a here, trap it, fossilize it, Evaporate it like ephemera. I want to say something here about the lifespan of this poem, of any solicited occasion bent poem. An occasion. An occasion in time, and the poem stranded there in time with the occasion. A shell of a thing once the occasion has passed. That's how I feel about many of the occasional poems I've written. What, on the other hand, might give a poem a chance to wriggle out of the skin of a particular moment in time and space? When I declined a request from someone at my university to compose a poem this year for a particular occasion, I was relieved. I was beginning to feel like a sham, a hack, like I didn't have a refusal in me, like a sellout. On such a small scale the word sellout with its connotation of profit is actually not apt. My realnesses as a poet felt at stake and in flux, as did, to use a word many of my brilliant panelists have used, my ego. And yet, we made a real noise together in the hub that day. The students loudly and cheerfully shouted first fire as I asked them to, and we made a glorious ruckus at the end. When all those undergraduates, packed to the rafters, were chanting in unison, it reminded me a little of them chanting in unison in the hockey arena or at the football field. What's more interesting, the similarities between these two chantings or the differences? What do chanting or hockey games or my poems offered at my school, at my public university, to my public university, mean or do when my faculty colleagues, so many of them, are criminally exploited adjunct labor? When my chanting undergraduates are crushed beneath unconscionable student loan debt? When the very enterprise of the public university is under attack? No one has requested that poem. There could be fire in that poem. My dad used to suggest frequently that I write poems about things he was noticing, things like beautiful sunsets or wind in pines. You should write a poem about this, he'd say. Was it that he imagined that poetry might make the sunset's beauty or memorability more complete? Might a poet's transformative filter certify a moment as a special occasion? Or was his not-quite-rhetorical request just another way of saying, wow, for a time I rolled my eyes in response as what I heard him saying was what you have chosen to write poems about is weird here's a normal thing to write about (laughs) I have a file folder inside my Dropbox poetry folder called occasional poems the poems in that folder never get dragged into the poems sent out or the published folders not yet at any rate but I do know I'll be adding at least one more poem to that folder each year for the foreseeable future I have a job, I got the call, I will get paid in mug and muffin. For 15 minutes between classes every October I'll be a poet, with a capital P, uh, reading at an annual ceremony held as the season turns toward darkness, a ceremony that involves gathering, eating, drinking, incantation, and fire. A poet could do worse. We have time for a few questions, and then I'm just going to hold us a a minute at the end so we can hear the big bird poem, which I think would be the best way to end the panel. If you have any questions for our panelists, I'd love to take them. Thank you. So to repeat the question, sort of like we were talking about the not wanting to be too sentimental or Pollyanna-ish or Hallmark-ish when writing a celebratory commemorative poem? How do you deal with the opposites, not, not wanting to fall into a really dark, awful hole, I think you use the word hole, when writing about a tragedy or a disaster? And just, uh, panelists, speak right into that microphone so the podcast can hear you.
1: There was the uh, poem that I read where the um, soldier was coming to tell the woman her son had died, right? And... There's something about that poem that, yes, it's tragic, but there's such a gentle address of the occasion and of the emotions of that occasion that it doesn't fall into a sentimentality, but yet a registering of the tragedy and what it takes to admit a tragedy and receive one as well. So that light touch on the situation was what impressed me about that.
3: I'd say also, it's no. in some ways, it's no different than writing a personal poem or a regular poem, in that poems and poets always try to seek the complexities of emotions within any given moment, as however small or however big. And so moving, of course, we know the tragedy or we know that feeling, but how do we take that to the idea of perhaps the idea of the resiliency of the human spirit, the idea, all these things that other poems include, right? I mean, when we write an elegy or, there's always this going beyond that and that we do in our regular poems. I mean, we we know the given already, but the poem tries to take us to some other place that's not the usual suspect emotion. And I think, like most poems, I think that's, that's the, the power of it all in many sense, make us think about something we're not have, we haven't thought about already that in some sense is usually the polar opposite in some ways
4: Yes How have we decided, why have we decided to say no to certain requests for occasional poems I was asked to, to write one uh, by someone at my university this year and, and a person I like about, you know, about an occasion I can sort of get behind. It's been a rough year at our university, and I think, I mean, there there have been some layoffs. There's, you know, all the searches are off. It's I'm not telling a story. Many of you are already living yourselves. And I just, I knew, I felt I couldn't muster the poem that they wanted, and I knew they wouldn't be wanting the poem that I might end up writing. And I just thought you know what, I like these people, it's been a horrible year for all of us. I am not, it's not going to be a good match. And so I said no.
2: I've been asked a lot and I've, I've said no to many poems, What uh, many occasions. I think the thing is is that if you cannot, as, as Liz has said, as, as Richard has said, if you cannot enter into that occasion with a pure heart and an open heart, then there's no point in doing it. There's also the sense that if you feel that you're only window dressing, that you're going to be, there's a way of saying uh, oh gosh, we have a poet up there and this makes it, this makes us big and good. Then no, that's a, a deal breaker for me.
3: Uh, same here, uh, sort of circling around the same idea. Again, if I feel that I can't connect emotionally at some thing, and I just feel I can't be honest about the poem, then, yeah, there's only been one time when someone asked me to write a birthday poem about a guy I I didn't know, (laughs) and I I knew that emotionally how I would need to know this guy's family, I would need to know him somewhat, or if he was a figure, a public figure that I could connect with and have something honest to say, and another occasional poem, well, it was an occasional poem, it just was really funny, I got asked to do a prostate cancer commercial, which uh, was pretty much a no. (laughs) So things like that, and I think a pharmaceutical company asked to to come and do workshops on poetry, and I was like, I don't know.
4: We have unfortunately run up to the end of our time. I want to make sure the next panel has enough time to get in here, and I want to make sure that we end properly with Big Bird.
2: Well, I'll um, I'll read this. It's short, because if you're dealing with children, it must be short. Uh, The poem and it does have some rhymes in it. It's called Perfect Bird. If I could just find the word to describe what I heard this morning outside my window. There was a flutter of wings, then the air tinkling like a thousand diamonds spilling to the floor. Soft as the first real snow, bright as a clown's fake nose, The song went on and on. I listened for an hour or more, or maybe I was dreaming. Oh, for the right word to describe its singing now that the bird is gone.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.